0: Well, grace to all in peace from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus, who has risen from the dead and in the power of our Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's actually good to see some faces out here at this service. It's been a whole year, so uh, it's good. I don't, I mean, I like staring at the camera a little bit, you know, but (laughs) it's good to actually have eyes I can see. This week I was reading about a professional golfer by the name of Tommy Bolt, who won 15 PGA titles back in the 1950s. He earned the nickname Thunderbolt because of his temper tantrums on the golf course. He admitted later in his career that his displays of anger on the course were more about theatrics and entertaining the crowd than actually losing his temper. He actually advised some of the golfers, you know, how to uh, lose their temper on the course. He uh, would say, uh, you know what, always throw your club on the forward way so you can pick it up on your way. And never break your driver and your putter on the same round. He faced criticism for his actions. Uh, Bolt claimed he never threw a club that didn't deserve it. Back in the 1950s, this was scandalous. It was shocking the way Tommy Bolt expressed his anger publicly. These days, we've become kind of immune to it. Anger seems to be our default emotion. I mean, just watch what happens in checkout lines and driving in your car as we try to get from one point to the other and just how quickly tempers rise. It's sad, but I also found a study that said Americans are angrier than ever, and I believe it. The National Public Radio and IBM Watson Health teamed up to survey Americans about their anger in 2019. The results may not surprise you. It says 84% of people surveyed said Americans are angrier today compared with a generation ago. 42% of people reported feeling angrier in the past year than they had been in times past. That was 2019. They hadn't gone through 2020 and the pandemic yet. I would imagine that if they did that survey today, that statistic would be much, much higher. anger. Jesus cleansing the temple today of the money changers displayed some anger. And it's not the Jesus that we might remember, do you remember that I, when I was growing up, I remember these pictures of Jesus sitting in a pastoral area with children coming around, sitting on his lap, and the Jesus that I saw in that picture kind of looked like the you know the neighbor down the road. It didn't look like a Middle Eastern man at all, but he would sit those children on his lap, and I would imagine myself sitting there in his lap as well, hearing words of love and affirmation, that soothing, calming voice that I'm sure. Jesus has, being encouraged in my life of faith and my relationship with God. That's what I remember. But what a different vision we have of Jesus this weekend, driving the animals and vendors out of the temple with a whip, throwing the money changers coins and tipping over their tables, demanding that the sellers of doves remove themselves before, well, he takes care of it for them. Not exactly the Jesus I remember. What is this all about? Well, the writer of John heightens the energy of this story by placing it at the very beginning of the gospel. You remember, we're reading from John chapter 2. The Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have this same story, but it's at the very end of their gospels. It's like when Jesus had enough Of the opposition leaders he'd been tested enough it's kind of like the straw that finally broke the camel's back he couldn't take it anymore and it results in all this anger but in john that's not the case he's barely gotten started with his message it's right at the beginning coming right after a kind of a small scale private miracle that his mom told him he had to do he was at a wedding and they said oh yeah turn we were out of wine remember that well, the cleansing of the temple is just after that. It's not like he's been in a long, exhausted battle. But John is telling us, this is how the good news begins. Jesus is passionate about something that is changing. Now, Jesus doesn't quote Isaiah or Jeremiah, as he does in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to accuse the opponents of turning the Lord's house, that, the house of prayer, into a den of robbers, suggesting that the main problem is defrauding the poor, corrupting the temple leaders, and maybe more importantly, collusion with Rome. But in John's account, I don't know if you heard it, it said, Stop making my father's house a marketplace, calling into question the expedient but also necessary act of changing coins to obey sacrificial law. You see, John puts this story up front Because it reveals something critical, crucial to who Jesus is. John the Baptist has has just been out there baptizing and he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few verses before that we hear, From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Jesus is an embodiment of grace upon grace. There's no need when Jesus shows up for any more sacrifice. Jesus incarnated embodied grace fully, wholly, entirely, completely satisfies everything. When Jesus, the Word made flesh, comes, everything changes. And among the first of these changes, if there's no longer a need to sacrifice as God will interact with God's people in a whole new way. Now keep in mind, the temple had become a marketplace out of necessity of keeping the commandments. We just heard them read. And the first commandment is, I'm God, have no other gods, don't make idols. And so, the coins they used were Roman coins. They had the symbol of, of Caesar on it. They couldn't touch those coins. They couldn't use them in the temple. And so, to buy the animals for sacrifice, they needed to exchange those Roman coins for Jewish ones. So they could get the animals the cow, the the bull, the doves and they could sacrifice them. But now that Jesus is here, the one who embodies abundance, grace upon grace. The one who just took the waters of purification at the wedding of Canaan and says, you don't need those anymore. And turn them instead to a wine of celebration. Says there's no need to change money. You don't have to buy animals for making sacrifice. It's over. Never again. You see, I think John, this evangelist of that fourth gospel, is going so far as to say to this community who is living in a time probably after the temple has been destroyed. And as followers of Jesus, they've probably been kicked out of their synagogues. John's saying, you don't need a synagogue. You don't need a temple. Because Jesus' body, who is the physical incarnation of grace upon grace, that his life, death, resurrection, ascension, And the coming of the Holy Spirit was and is sufficient to mediate grace upon and mercy of God. John is proclaiming the truth. That God is interacting with God's people in a brand new way. A way that no longer requires sacrifice at the temple because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come. Not only as the last sacrifice, but also now to mediate and make accessible God's unimaginable and unexpected grace. And so Jesus is now introducing us to this parental heart of God. Jesus is the one who who makes the unknowable God knowable, the unapproachable God, is now available anywhere, anytime. The promise is, is that God is now available 24-7, anywhere. Geographically and spiritually. You don't have to wait till you get to the temple or the synagogue to experience God. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's that God is already there, wherever we are, in the church building, or in your home, at your place of work, whatever building that might be, or at your work desk, in your home, in the school building, or at the table, where you do church on li- or do uh, school online. God is everywhere. God is available, whether we're at our spiritual mountaintop or we're out in the desert looking for some sign of God. When we're in the company of loved ones, or we're desperately feeling alone. Joy, sadness, wherever. Shoveling snow, changing diapers, running errands. In all these places and more, God is already present, working to comfort, to encourage, to strengthen, to heal, restore, and to send us. The question becomes then, why would we want to pause for Sunday worship if God is available and present anywhere? Why would I need to set aside any time to worship God, whether in a building or in my home, if God is available whenever I need God? Because this good news is really hard to remember because every day you and I experience hassles and challenges and heartaches and tragedies of everyday life. One glance at the headlines threatens our belief that God is present, let alone that God cares. An hour of listening to another person's pain calls into question the promise that God is with us. And so we take time to honor God's gift of the third commandment, we heard it today, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, not because it is the best and only place to experience God, but because during worship, we can detect God's presence and promises most clearly and most easily. In the beauty of the the songs that Allison and the band sing, in the words of a sermon, in the bread, wine, and water of the sacraments, we hear clearly and boldly the promise that God is with us, God is for us, And that experience, that equips us and encourages us to look for and to partner with God and to see God's presence and work in this world in which we live and breathe. And all week long, we open our eyes to see where God might be at work. You see, our call as followers of Jesus is not to invite people to worship because this is the place people see God. Our call is to invite people to worship because having experienced God during this one hour, they might leave more able to detect God in the next 160 hours of their week. It's not easy to see God amidst all that you're going to encounter this week. But that's okay because we're going to gather next week, same time. To hear God's promises, to sing God's story, to be rooted back in faith and commission for life once again. Our call as followers of Jesus is to help people discover where God's presence is permeating their lives and this world. So that we can share, I see the promise of grace. I see the promise of compassion. I see the promise of courage. I see the promise of love. In the season of Lent, Jesus envisioned of people of God doing that very thing. Not just frantically trying to appease God by giving yourselves some customs or traditions or whatever you're going to deny yourself. Instead, Jesus is drawing you into the very heart of God. Jesus will later say in John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So let me ask, as we enter now into the third Sunday, the third week of our 40-day journey of Lent, how are your preparations for Easter leading you into abundant life? Remember? Remember? This season of Lent is is, is our practice to be Easter people in a Good Friday world. And so the disciplines of Lent that that we're walking our way through, self-examination, repentance, this week it's about prayer, then about fasting, sacrificial giving, works of love. Those aren't just to be a bunch of stuff that we can kind of check off and say, yep, done that one, done that one, yep, got that one. No. We walk through these disciplines of Lent as a way that we can be captured a way that we can be drawn back into the heart of God, that our eyes can be opened as well as our hearts to experience anew the promise of grace and compassion and courage. Jesus is present to you right now. He is with you, for you, promises to give you grace and mercy and compassion and love. And God is using this time of practice called Lent to draw you back into God's heart. And if we're willing to give ourselves to this season and to our Lord and realize that it's not about what we might sacrifice but it's about clinging to Jesus then I think this Lent will be a time when we will experience the abundant life that Jesus wants us to know. The abundant life that Jesus died and rose and is coming again to make sure that we remember each and every moment. Thanks be to God. Amen.